Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I am your humble host, Coach Jason Coop, and this week I'm out on the road again. I'm recording this out of my hotel room. I brought on the podcast this week somebody who I have a tremendous amount of respect for in the research and the coaching community, and that is Jamie Hugh, PhD, who is a researcher at John Moore's University. He is also an athlete, and he's also a fantastic coach. And he just happens to have a specialty in GI function and GI distress. And I don't need to tell you athletes out there that that is one of the most prevalent problems in all of endurance sports and in particular with the rigors of ultramarathon running. It's something that everybody experiences. Jamie was recently a co-author on the paper on a paper that was titled Gastrointestinal Pathophysiology During Endurance Exercise, Endocrine, Microbiome, and Nutritional Influences. And if you can't tell from the title of that paper, we need to think about GI distress as this multifactorial problem that has different answers that you can use to reduce the severity and the symptoms of GI distress. We go through a whole host of those during the course of this podcast, as well as some practical implementations that you can use during training and during races. I really appreciate Jamie coming on the podcast and as an extra special treat for the listeners, we're going to have the lead author, Kyle Smith, uh, of this paper come on next week in a special two-part series. So I'm going to get right out of the way. Here's my conversation with Jamie Pugh. You're doing this. You're doing the study at Kona, and you reached out to me to see if we had any athletes there. How how has that generally been going for you guys? Are you, are you guys going to get it up and running? Are you going to have a good subject pool? It looks yeah. We I think we've got just over forty now. I think in the last like maybe I think maybe in the last ten days of recruitment, I think we'll get another ten more at least. So it's been it's been amazing. Like look, we don't when the study isn't directly in conjunction with Ironman or anything. That we're not officially affiliated with the race. So that's always make things more difficult because you're trying to indirectly contact potential uh, participants. So we, we knew it was going to be a challenge, but yeah, it's going to be, because you know, ultra endurance athletes are amazed at this sort of thing and they're more than happy to get involved and they're interested in data, they're interested in themselves, they're inquisitive. So when you put the study to them, our hit rate has been really good. Like most people that hear about it have said yes. But um, but it's just it's that challenge in the first place. But it's going amazing. The biggest challenge now is getting me into Hawaii for the study <laughs> based here in, in the UK. What what I might have to do is go and spend two weeks in South America somewhere first, somewhere that is letting the Brits in. Go stay there for two weeks and then fly directly from there to to Hawaii. Oh my god, I didn't think about that. Wow. How, I mean, it just makes everything more complicated. Is there anybody else on the research team that needs to come from outside the U.S.? No, no, someone else is based, based, oh, in, the, wow. based in the U.S. It means that we've been hit on numbers slightly as well because I know so many Brits and so many Europeans who've got their place, who've got their slot. They've maybe entered or they've maybe booked the flights and the credit card, but while they don't know what's going to happen with the restrictions, it's like, well... I don't even know if I'm going to race eventually, but I don't know if I can get there, which is crazy that we're only, I think, what, six, six and a bit weeks away, seven weeks away. Yeah. Wow. Unbelievable. Well, good, good, good luck with it. <laughs> oh, so. Even with what we've got now, it's going to be an unbelievable study, but something that, something that shows the power of, of things like this, because it all um, happened from a podcast, like Greg and Matt were um, on uh, another podcast. I don't know if I should say the podcast, because obviously it's another ultra endurance one. That's totally fine. You can say it. it's totally fine. <laughs> no, but the Ronnie and Sharman podcast discussing research and discussing GI, discussing GI issues. And then out of the blue, uh, one of them just goes, oh, and there was this really cool study from the UK and Liverpool. And I was just running, listening to it. And so I reached out to them and that was the start of this this whole study. So it shows even from an academic side of, of things, the, the, the usefulness of, of conversations like this and the reach it can have. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. One of the things that COVID has kind of done is it's forced us to network differently. 
right? And part of that different in network is getting on podcasts and having conference calls and doing these like kind of seminars and stuff like that. And it's kind of, it's fostered some different ways of thinking in my, in, in my perspective. Yeah, 100%, 100%. That makes it some for the better, some maybe not for the better if we can try and blend the two because it is still nice to meet people face-to-face and chat, but maybe just cut some of the unnecessary ones with flying <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 I've definitely been on my, on my fair share of unnecessary flights. <laughs> okay, well, good luck, good luck to you in that study. I hope it comes Thank back. We'll, we'll bring you back on the podcast to discuss the results. How's that sound? Oh, definitely. I think the results would be amazing. I said, Greg has already done a, um, a case study with one of the guys who ran Western States uh, a few years ago. And if we see something similar, but in a large group of athletes, then it'll be a, an amazing data set. Yeah, perfect. Okay, so what we're going to discuss is another paper, though. And to, to cue the listeners up, the title of it, first off, it's in the European Journal of Applied Physiology. And the title is Gastrointestinal Pathophysiology During Endurance Exercise, Endocrine Microbiome and Nutritional Influences. And whenever I see a title like this, I'm kind of laughing. I feel that the I feel that the research team, and in particular the lead author and the second and the second authors that have kind of like brought this to light. Whenever I see a title like this, the only thing I can think is, is okay. There's this big issue out there, and they're just trying to figure all this shit out. They're just trying to figure it out with the rest of us using the existing research because it's such a big, comprehensive topic. So let's take the broadest look possible at all of the existing research and try to distill it down into some into some common themes. So am I correct in that assertion that you and Kyle, who's the lead author, are kind of looking at this and going, okay, let's see if we can figure some of this stuff out? 100%. Like you said, we all start with that basic idea of that there's so much research now. When I, st- I started my PhD about six years ago, and I think that some of this stuff is starting to be published. I think maybe going back to 2010, around that sort of time, the papers have started to gather in this area of endurance exercise or ultra-endurance exercise and gastrointestinal issues, and it just snowballs every year. And so Kyle and, and Mike Ormsby, um who's a corresponding author on the paper, approached myself and, and then Graham Close, who's um, my uh, line manager at Liverpool John, uh, Liverpool John Moores University. And because we published some papers in this area, they published some papers in this area. So, okay, what, let's bring together some of the current information. So you, we didn't really start with all of those different topics in mind, but as I said, what naturally happens is you think, well, we can't really only talk about this while ignoring another huge factor that could play into it because you either make ourselves look stupid or, you know, you're ignoring something blatant. And then part of the reason we want to bring so many is to make our review a little bit different, is to include include some of those topics, even though there's no research in them, with the hope that, okay, if we just start to bring this to light and we start the conversation, then rather than rehash the same studies over and over again, which is I think is definitely what has happened in the last couple of years. I see so many papers that measure the same blood marker or the same two blood markers. And we're not, I think we've hit a a stalling point in our knowledge. So it's okay. What about all of these other things that no one has started to study yet? And that's some of those things that I'm sure we'll get into. So the gist of the whole thing is, is it's multifactorial. Right, we, we tend to try to in in the ultra endurance and the endurance space. We tend to try to look at gastrointestinal distress, which is a big deal. It's always been a big deal, and it continues to be a big deal. And I think that this in 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 injuries are probably the front runners in terms of the things that we have not figured out very well as endurance athletes. And one of the things I've kind of like come to appreciate with actually both of those topics, now that I'm thinking about it, is that there are always a multitude of factors that are going into it. And what I felt that you guys were trying to do is almost kind of rank order it a little bit. Like here are the things, here are the heavy hitters that are that are the most important that are causing the issue. And here are the heavy hitters that you can focus on to try to uh, to try to alleviate it. So we'll take the first topic first, right? The heavy hitters that are actually causing this issue. So when you go and you look at the landscape of things, what are the major contributing factors to all this GI distress? And I think that this order is important because the solutions have to fit the problems. 
right? And I think a lot of that, a lot of that linkage kind of came out throughout the paper. So why don't you set that table for us really quick? No, and that's a really good way of thinking about it. Because it's that, and even there's even almost a, a, a differentiation between the the causes that you've been acting upon and maybe some of the underlying physiology mechanisms, which are sort of neat and interesting. But like you said, for a coach or an athlete, it's sort of I don't really care what what modifi- modifiable action can I take in the build up to my next race or in my next race, um, and that's where probably it all starts with the the diet. And so I think one of the first things you said in there is that. If one of the, if not the primary function of the gastrointestinal tract is to digest and absorb nutrients from our diet, and we know that it passes through and eventually will come out of the other side, and what we're trying to avoid is either unwanted movement, unwanted symptoms from movement, um, irregular movement or malabsorption of any of those foods, all of which can start to manifest in symptoms even what we put into our stomach. So when we look at some of the symptoms like nausea or vomiting, this can happen if we're putting too much of the wrong things in at the wrong time. And then if it can't go down, it's ultimately got to come back up at some point. <laughs> and I think you're right. One of the, it, It's so much more prevalent in running, first of all, than any other sport. Running is Running events are one of the few sports where you have regular non-finish non-finishes non-completions or postponements due to gastrointestinal symptoms you rarely see it on a football pitch or in team sport or even in cycling it's so much rarer than it is in running at most distances and then as you go up in the distances it's more and more common i think we it's probably n-shaped i think there's probably a, a distance or a duration where we have the the highest incidence so i don't know if that's maybe a around the 100-mile, 24-hour mark. And I think potentially because that's the limit of the, the – the, we're still really running at a fast pace, especially at that elite end. They are running seriously fast. So it's a huge physiological challenge. They also then need to try and fuel that. And they also probably don't want any unexpected bathroom breaks during it. So I think that's why then if you have one, that is a major – um, drawback against performance. If you're doing something longer than 24 hours, you probably plan to go to the toilet at some point or other. You probably plan to have a bowel movement so you can factor it in and it's less of a psychological stress. So I think that, as I said, there's no great data. It's, it's difficult to collect data, obviously, from, from a lot of these, but from what I've seen, that 100-mile, 24-hour, plus they're always ran in these amazing but hot places. There's often an altitude challenge to some of the, the big major races as well. Um, so that you add that stress on top of it, and all of a sudden the, di- the digestive tract probably can't handle the huge amounts of food you're trying to get in to fuel that performance. And so when we, we look at gastrointestinal distress through that like multifactorial lens and then specific for ultra runners – can we rack and stack what the root causes are, meaning, or is it even possible? Meaning, you, t- you talked about earlier, modality matters, right? We see this in running a lot more than we see it in cycling or in other endurance sports. The sheer volume of food that you're taking in matters a lot. The amount the time, of... The timing of that food as well. Yeah. So you said it, it, can, it probably starts eight to 10 weeks out, your risk is going to be changing that whole way through. Because if you're, if you're not eating the types of foods that you're going to eat in the race, if you're not training the gut, if then in the 24 to 48 hours, you're eating foods that are more likely to sit in the large intestines, so your fatty foods, your high fiber foods, that's going to cause an osmotic challenge. And then right the way through to the race, if you're eating the wrong sources of, of say carbohydrates or the wrong types of foods that you're you haven't trained the guts to, to eat so it is well that whole way through and i think that's what as you said what makes it so difficult because then when you get a study with 20 runners and you try and isolate one variable but you haven't been able to factor all of these other variables so even if you just look at you can look at the averages certainly and you can start to say well on average these are the ones that mostly affect athletes or have some impact on our athletes but you delve into it further you see that at an individual level none of them are great predictors you probably do need an appreciation of all of it to try and 
isolate the one that's that's impacting you or your athlete. Yeah. So I, I think the better way to frame it up is to understand that there are all of these factors. And then as you're going through training and the racing process to kind of like solve this problem, pick the things that might actually have an impact across those factors versus just randomly kind of throwing, <laughs> throwing stuff, yeah. throwing stuff across the, across the wall. Right. No, definitely. Like I said, because you can start to think even within, like I said, the ultra endurance races, how, how long is it will maybe even start to factor in? Do, will you consider solid foods or will you take almost an entire liquid or gel form of, of carbohydrate intake? Do you need foods other than high carbohydrate foods? If it's that long, you might want a hot meal, you might want something. Um, we know that the longer the duration, the more our taste preferences flip a little bit and we go to, we start desiring savory type foods and all of that needs to go into the planning like you said it's such a one of the reasons i think it's still quite prevalent is because it's almost such a big task and when you're right. trying to think about your training load and your travel arrangements and all of those other parts that come to to race performance to add that extra one in is is difficult and maybe it's the one that most people bring in at the final stage if they've got that time or mental capacity to consider it otherwise it's all right well these are the general things that i know that i've heard about fueling i'll just stick with some of these general guidelines without thinking about you the just, other 10 points. you just touched on a really important topic because most of the most athletes are trying to solve these gi issues in real time but the fact of the matter is is it's more likely that if you take a comprehensive approach throughout the training process, those things don't show up. In your paper, identified three or four different things that can happen during both both during well a little bit during the race, but mainly during the training process that could help alleviate GI uh, symptoms. And let's start to run through those because this is going to be the solutions part of the part of the podcast yeah, here. Yeah, we'll yeah. just we'll just say the problem's super complicated here, the solutions. We, we'll skip we'll skip the, the first part. So the things that you identified are a low FODMAP diet, training the gut, which is kind of becoming a little bit con- controversial if these things can be controversial, right? Can you actually achieve that adaptation? Um, and probiotics. So let's run through those and and why they actually might be efficacious in terms of creating a better GI scenario for for race day. Yeah, yeah, perfect. So the, the low FODMAP diet, then. So anyone who hasn't maybe come across it, or if those have, it's about giving it too much of an in-depth rundown. We're looking at typically undigestible fibers or carbohydrates that will pass through the small intestine and then make their way through to the, the large intestine, and they're then fermented by the bacteria in our guts, which for most of us is something that's actually beneficial. We want in a lot of circumstances, depending on the type of fiber, or they can have prebiotic effects, so they could be good for our gut health. The research has started to translate over because it's been found that in IBS patients, it can be a, an effective treatment for symptoms. Because what you're essentially doing, if you're taking away the food from that fiber, the food for that gut bacteria, when they consume that, they're giving off gas. And so that's going to cause a, an internal pressure in the abdomen or the, the intestines. They can also have an osmotic effect. So if the those molecules are in the large intestine, they might be drawing water again into the intestines, causing a, a, a like a hydro pressure, if you like. So that's, that's where the, the idea has come from. And then the researchers have translated to that to say, okay, does this have an effect for those who suffer from symptoms during exercise? The, the efficacy of it is, is mixed. I think it's, again, if you look at the, the so Dana Liz and Trent Stellenworth published a, an amazing paper a couple of years ago looking at symptomology in athletes. The problem that they found and that I certainly found in some of my research is that Athletes do have symptoms from time to time, but in their general training, it's it is still it's rare enough that it's difficult to measure. So in that paper, they have a really nice graph that shows that okay, on a week, if we ask all these athletes to rate their symptoms on a visual scale, you have this huge range in their participants. So some of them have a really small amount of symptoms that week, which is sort of to be expected, isn't it? But we're not 
we'd, if, if all of us were always suffering from these symptoms, we would have given up the sport a long time ago. We wouldn't go out the door running if we were almost guaranteed a symptom. Um, so th- in that paper, they found that on average, the low FODMAPs reduced gastrointestinal symptoms. The magnitude of response, though, was, was really varied. Some had no response whatsoever. Some people reported worse symptoms on the low FODMAP. So it's one of those that exactly that we started off saying that it's not then just as simple as saying, oh, should we just go low FODMAP? Because they're beneficial to health in other ways or certain high FODMAP foods to then unnecessarily restrict could have a negative impact, especially if it's something that you bring into race day without having trialed it before. Um, so it's become one of those real, it's almost not quite, but it's similar to like the, it's the new low gluten diet or gluten free yeah. diet. I think in a lot of endurance sport, it's become this really like popular thing. And of course, in some people it can reduce their symptoms, but it's most of these foods, if they're high carbohydrate foods, they're going to be um, lots of fruits, lots of vegetables, lots of foods that we'd otherwise want to consume. Um, so it's that, that's the first. I think so. I think for some athletes, it's, it's certainly worth a conversation. It's certainly worth a food diary before a race or before a, a key training run, and then you can start to track the symptoms. Because like I said, there's been a few case studies that has been really effective with some athletes who consistently suffer with symptoms during races. It's so the the dialogue that you just mentioned mirrors my professional experience with this because I have had athletes on both sides of the efficacy fence where we introduce a low FODMAP diet and it literally is miraculous. Like, I mean, it's just, it's just like the, it is, you're exactly right. It is just like the low gluten or gluten-free diet was, you know, seven or eight years ago where people were going on this and they were just like, you know, kind of blown away with, or some, some people were just blown away with what the, what the difference was. And then I've had other athletes that we try to incorporate it for whatever reason. And it's just like a big nothing burger, you know, like there's. I was going to say, and that's why not that it's dangerous and dangerous is maybe the wrong word but the gluten diet is uh, gluten-free diet is is restricted the right. whole format is really restricted right. because there's right. so many fruits vegetables dairy that you need to take out and if you're going to do it for an ibs patient who would go on a low format diet you would go you would undergo this months-long process of eliminating all of them then bringing one of them back in each time to try and because it, it's likely that you're only one type of fermentable uh, carbohydrate is the issue you could probably digest all of the others but one might give you the issue so it might be lactose for example or it might be gluten or whatever it's going to be so you that's the process you would undergo if you were diet so just completely restrict it before your races and if you're somebody who races three four five times a year you could be doing this every every couple of months every few months well, and another one of the big issues with trying to figure it out that way is just the total amount of energy availability that you're intaking typically goes yeah. down because you're taking your normal diet and you're restricting something or some things from it. And most people have a challenging time replacing those calories one for one. And when the training load is really high, or even if the training load is not very high, you can come it's very easy to come up with an energy mismatch so it's not the way that i view the, the way that i've always viewed trying to incorporate or try to try to test out a low fodmap diet is not simply by elimination but by substitution because if you get that substitution piece in your head you can kind of get the calories right because here you can very easily just substitute one problem for another Right, you yeah. substitute the GI issue, maybe, and maybe you find some alleviation or some sort of fix for that. But on the other end of the spectrum, now you have an energy intake problem, which is, you know, you could argue is even more problematic from a, especially from a long term perspective. And that comes back to something that I, I meant to touch on early on in saying that when we talk about gastrointestinal symptoms, one of the problems has become, and I've certainly experienced this with, with athletes that I've consulted for is that any symptom is a problem. And the reality is it's not, is it? Like, so we could run and have a little bit of gas. It's uncomfortable, but so is running an ultramarathon. Like, it's uncomfortable on your feet, it's uncomfortable on your, your joints. And 
So they said, so definitely had athletes and you asked them, oh, you know, did you, did it cause you to not finish the race? Did you have to drop out? And they say, oh, no, it was just, I'd rather not have it. Or you, that's the impression that you get. And so if that's the level you're starting to try and alleviate, and like you said, you could be throwing a much bigger problem on by a low energy availability or a restricted diet. Um, it's, it's obviously not worth it. So that was one of the things I wanted to say from the start as well, is that even the severity of symptoms needs to be considered because a lot of the research, you see these big numbers thrown that 90% of, of athletes um, surveyed at Western States had a symptom. You go through the data and you find that, well, look, 60% of that 90 just, just farted, essentially. On a scale of one to 10, they reported one for flatulence. So it's not that 90% had symptoms, it's just that loads of people had a bit of gas, which we all do, we all do during the day anyway, at some point, probably. So that's where I think that needs considering as well is that, look, we want to avoid anything if possible. Of course, we all want that perfect race, that everything goes well, that we're no issues with injuries or fatigue, but the reality that I think if, if some athletes go in with the mindset of, I could experience this as a mild problem, and you go in almost expecting it, that would, I think, in, in some cases help as well a little bit. Oh, that's so brilliant. This, so the analogy that I've got in my head right now is, is from a training perspective, there's always a gap, right? There's always a gap between the amount of training you can do during any training phase, no matter how perfect it is, and the physical resources that you need during the race. And what we try to do with smart training is we try to get that gap as narrow as possible, but there's always a gap. And so you, and so that gap manifests in the difficulty of the race, right? There is some struggle, right? During the course of a race, sometimes it's late, sometimes it's early, sometimes it's the middle, sometimes it's the whole thing, but there is some sort of struggle, which is representative of that gap. It's the same thing on the GI perspective, like expect there to be a little bit of a gap between how well you can be prepared and what the race is actually going to demand of you come come race day. And so when you do have the symptoms of one out of 10, it's not so surprising. You're like, yeah, this is part of the deal. This is part of the job, right? Yeah, yeah. Like I said, so we, 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 we also want to avoid the ones that make us pull out and the, the GI symptoms are often the, the, the leading or the second leading cause for non-finishing or underperformance. But yeah, I think going in with the expectation of something is probably going to happen. They said it, it's... I've definitely had athletes running 100 milers and I'd be surprised that at some point they needed to go to the toilet. And so, well, you're pretty much out yeah. all day. Yeah, You exactly. go to the toilet every day normally. So why did you not think that there was going to be something special about this day that you just weren't going to go? And I think if, if you, ex like you said, expect it and minimize the risk of something more severe, something worse, then that's a good place to go for, for a lot of people. That, that you, need to, you need to edit the paper and submit something, uh, uh, submit something after the fact, and that's just athlete expectations, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, take, I'll take credit for that if you do get that submission. Okay, so, so, we, so we talked a little bit about the low FODMAP diet. It's miraculous for some. It's a nothing burger for others, and it can it, it can be problematic to 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 implement. But something certainly worth doing. And I would I would recommend the athletes that are out there that are considering this as a as a long more of a long term intervention to work with a registered dietitian or nutritionist with this because they can help guide that energy balance process. Hundred percent. So said, with a lot of the things that we can do, often they're really. They're not simple, but they're much simpler compared to the FODMAPs. So let's say if we want to, and what we're going to now take a probiotic, it's okay, I, I take this pill or I don't. If you change your carbohydrate strategy during a race, it's okay, well, I'm just fine-tuning the amounts and the volume that I'm taking. With a low-FODMAP diet, like you said, all of a sudden you're looking at a complete upheaval of your diet, potentially. So that's something that needs a good sit-down, a good conversation, and lots of deep thought and planning. Okay, so we started out with the most complex one. We're going to kind of go from comp complex to simple. Maybe it's simple. So the, so the next oh, one is the next one is the next one is gut training. And um, to set this up a little bit, there's this great uh, I don't know if it's great anymore, but there's this uh, subheader in the book that I wrote, and it just says your stomach is made of muscle too. And the, the point that I was trying to make with that is, is most people think of muscle as skeletal muscle. 
and they go and they do a bicep curl and their biceps get bigger, right? Because it's skeletal muscle and skeletal muscle adapts. And so by presenting the stomach as a muscle too, what I was, what the argument that I was trying to set up is that it can adapt to stress in a similar way, not the exact same way, but in a similar way to skeletal muscle. And this has kind of gone, this is an area that's gone back and forth in, 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 in the research as well. Um, we tend to trivialize it from a coaching and a training perspective to say, oh, just practice your race day nutrition. But now there's some research out there that says, well, you know, based on uh, an overload principle, you may be able to get superior adaptations with with overloading the system just in a way that you would do training, right? You overload and then you, and then you, or in a similar way as you would do training. So you covered this in, 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 in the paper and there's definitely, you know, it's probably going to end up being just as ambiguous as the low FODMAP diet. So Jamie, why don't you, why don't you take us through what, what you guys found out when reviewing the research? Because again, it's one of those that a lot of coaches and athletes discuss this. We know this. We we have conversations about it. We go to the literature, and there's there's one study that has <laughs> really looked at this. That there's there's another one I can talk about. And in that study, it's it's a really great methodological study. It's a really good proof of principle. What they got the athletes to do was run for an hour every day, consuming 90 grams an hour of carbohydrates during every single run. So it's 10 runs over two weeks, which I'll leave it up to other people, but I don't how practical it is, how many people are going to do that. Whereas a more traditional approach might be, okay, I do my long runs or I do my back-to-back runs on the weekend. We'll start there. And at some point we might add a couple more training sessions in a week. So that, that paper was good in that the proof of principle of showing that your, your intestines can adapt. So that you said you need transport proteins to take that carbohydrate from the the lumen of the intestine and almost let it come across into circulation though the number of those transport proteins aren't fixed and where they are in the cell aren't fixed so we can get more transporters and we can have more of them at the surface where they're needed so that paper was really good and it showed a reduction in malabsorption of the the carbohydrates but to translate that now to your athlete as you said is is difficult. Um, if we start higher up in the stomach, there's a really nice paper that again showed that over this time only over five days, if you consume a, a huge amount of water, I think it's close to two liters yeah. an hour, you can very, very, like by a small amount, increase the rate of gastric emptying, which for when you think you're taking on two nearly two liters an hour isn't great, isn't it? Wasn't a huge finding, but what they also found is that people could just tolerate it better. So the perception of fullness actually reduced a little bit during that study. So those are the like the two main studies in this area. Everything else is just experience and hearsay, right. essentially. Which, as you like, you said it makes things difficult. Where do you go from that? And where you put that in your season? Where you put that in your training phase? Um, is is difficult. There's this fear, there's cell culture models, and we know these sorts of things. Like we know this adaptation can happen, but the science behind how best to do this is is pretty low. The the other place there's good research is showing that just in general, if you ask people in studies, do you take, do you consume carbohydrates during training usually, and then when you compare the at the end of a race, who had symptoms and who didn't those who consume carbohydrates in the training tend to have. So that's, it's nice evidence that some of what we do in the real world works, but maybe it doesn't mean it's perfect in how we do it. Yeah, and it, I'm, I'm kind of laughing here because we, it's almost cliche that we that we say these things like oh you need to try your race day nutrition program and like you said a lot of this is just the experience that we know that we shouldn't be incorporating new things on race day and we should have some degree of familiarity with our nutrition program on race day but when i when I, when i come back to this i kind of like my coaching background is heavily rooted in interval training and when we talk about interval training one of the things that we try to get the one of the things that we try to get the best fix on is what is the dose that is necessary to achieve the right response so you want a vo2 max bump right we know with a reasonable degree of certainty 
that you need a certain amount of time at a certain intensity exposure to bump up VO2 max. And you can go up and down the intensity spectrum and you can kind of get good fixes on this. You need you know, 10 minutes at 90% of your VO2 max or an hour at 85% of your VO2 max or whatever. I look at this nutrition thing through the same lens and I can't come up with that precise of an answer. No, because like I said, like if that Australian study is the sort of, okay, we know this works if we hammer the system, if we do this nearly every day for two weeks. But that's, that's almost unrealistic for athletes. And like I said, that's without even taking into account any dental issues that might come along with just consuming that much. But which is, like you said, we, we have to put the, the whole athlete health, even the cost of it, the cost of doing that, when you look at some of the the new hydrogel mixes and all these things that they're not cheap. If you want to go and run and consume 90 grams an hour, you, it's a $20 all run. Oh, all of a sudden it's a $20 run. So that's the start point. Great. Here's our proof of principle. Like exactly what you said. Now, if we try and think, well, what's the dose if we start? So, and again, I can only speak from, from my experience and, and what we've used to some of our, of our athletes and it's, it, it means that we start really early in the process. So we might be off season, do what you like, you know, you enjoy your runs. If you're thirsty, if it's hot, have a drink. But once we're in a specific training phase, okay, we're going to now, just like your training load might increase, we'll increase your nutrition load during some of those runs. And I said, it might start out the weeks one to three. We only do this on your, your Sunday with your weekend long runs. And it might be 30 grams an hour in a given volume of fluid weeks, four to eight that increases every single week. And we're also going to throw that into a a midweek, mid long run. If you've got that in your program, then two weeks out. Okay. We're going to do it almost just to try and mimic some of what we see in that paper. We do at least one of the interval sessions because that's often the one that might mimic some race pace or mimic some of the, harder intensities that you'll no doubt get during a race. So whether that be because you're hill climbing or this is the surging pace, and we'll still also then do it in your uh, mid long run, your long runs on the weekend. But that's, like I said, that's a, that's a, all of a sudden that's a really complicated detailed program to include. And it, it's costly. And that's assuming that at no point during it, does the athlete decide, well, do you know what this, this particular brand or this particular ratio of carbohydrates or particular food intake doesn't suit me anymore. I want to experiment with a new one. Here's so you mentioned one thing that I think is really interesting is these adaptations are sure surely have some sort of transient nature to them, right? They come and they go and we don't know what that rate is. And if I use my interval training analogy, we know detraining rates pretty well. Like you remove training stimulus and we can plot out on a curve what happens to VO2 max, what happens to lactate threshold, what happens to muscular strength. And we, like I said, there's been enough experimentation there that we can get a, a realistic fix on this. We don't know this in this area. Here's here's how I've honestly like alchemized it. And, and it's very similar to what you do with your athletes is eight weeks before the race, twice a week, you have you were doing your race day nutrition program period. And, and I just, and I, I just always, keep it that simple. Yeah. And I always try and include as well. You either have your, your B races throughout that time where you're not just going to do your in race, but you need to practice exactly what you think you're going to eat the day before, because it's no good yeah. thinking, oh, okay, I've got my nutrition down, but you, you didn't even think about the food you were going to eat the day before. So it's almost okay. We need that entire routine. Yeah even if the volumes aren't exactly the same, because of course you're going to load up much more to do your, your 50 mile or your hundred mile, wherever it's going to be. But if you've got a big weekend, at least one of those weekends, two of those weekends, you now need to think about and replicate and get that plan, write it down, make comments afterwards, what felt good, what didn't feel good. Exactly. As you said, you would do with your, just your, your, the actual run training. Yeah, I, I I agree with that run a show thing. Whether you're using a long run or a B race or whatever, but but I've I've just found through experience that eight weeks, twice a week, full race day program. I feel 
yeah, I hate, scientists hate these statements, but I feel that that, get, that that is the right dose for some reasonable GI response. In addition to that, it's enough frequency that the athlete just gets used to, hey, this is the stuff I'm going to take in on race day. And the final thing is, is it allows enough time and enough frequency just to get into the routine and take the thinking out of what is my race day routine going to be. So like all, like the physiology, the practical, the psychology side, all kind of a line up with that one frequency is three days a week, you know, better, or is it nine weeks versus eight, you know, who knows? I'm not going to split that hair that finely, but I think that's like roughly enough, enough dose and enough frequency to create a reasonable response. And then you line it up with all the other practical elements. I, I just think it's a, you know, it's, it, it's in the, it's, I'm not going to say I'm right, but it's at least in the ballpark. <laughs> well, the one thing you know is that if, if you're not doing, if you're not experimenting with something that is less well studied, so if you're not thinking of taking, I don't know, ketone esters or medium chain triglycerides or amino acids, if you're not thinking of taking these things and your, your fueling is mostly carbohydrate, which I'll leave to you to discuss. I do some of your show, but if that's what your strategy is, you can adapt to the carbohydrate transporters just through your normal diet. Anyway. Yeah. So if you have a, a higher carbohydrate diet, like you said, that's like the your residual training that's going on in the background. So if you if you don't restrict that in your habitual diet, it's like you're going to have that constant load added. And these um, training runs where you're adding on the exercise stuff can be exactly what you said, as much about the adaptation of the gut as it is the psychological side of things, the practice, the repetition, all of those other things that is beyond just training the gut. Yeah, you know, I don't think you touched on this in this paper, but I talked about this in a previous podcast with uh, Patrick Wilson, that a lot of this become a lot of the GI issues happen with people who have had previous GI issues. And yeah. there's a physiological component to that, absolutely. But there's also a psychological component to that, too. If they've experienced it before and they know it's at a certain mile marker or at a certain temperature or kind of whatever, that anxiety that is already enhanced throughout the process through just because of doing a race, that anxiety that, oh, shit, literally, I'm at this, you know, I'm at mile 50 of 100, and I always have these GI issues above 80 degrees or at mile 50 or whatever, that creates another, like, compounding factor that that, that can fuel a lot of this GI distress. And that maybe leads on one of the things that we, one of the things that we threw in the paper that we, we had, there's no exercise or evidence there for, was this link between the, the gut and the brain and some of the neurotransmitters, some of the, the hormones that can play a role because we know from other other models, other clinical models, that all of these things can even affect the, the visceral sensation of pain. So as like you said, so then, and this is why you might then see differences between athletes because you could have two athletes with the same diet, the same training, the same, the same everything out of prep, but if one of them is stressed and that leads to some underlying physiological or neurolog neurological change, that might just mean that, so not to say that it's all in that, it's not something that is all in their head, but their physiology is physically making that stress more painful to them than another athlete. And that's, so we put that in the paper, even though it's really short and it's not great. <laughs> before that, just because we want to stimulate this conversation and, and make people aware of these things and see how can we, we study this in future. Well, and uh, go back, going back to my, you know, twice a week for eight weeks, a lot of times what I'll do when I uh, start that process with athletes who who have like this routine uh, or they, they show a pattern of GI distress during really specific parts, we try to work through those really specific parts as much as you can or as much as you can have an equivalent during the training process so that they get some reasonable degree of confidence that they can get there. And it might not be zero, but it's at least you know, maybe one as opposed to four or five or six, which they, they were experiencing earlier. And that's, yeah, that is something that with all the people I've consulted for, I, it's almost something you, I say to everyone at baseline, like, don't expect this to completely alleviate your symptoms. Right. Let's just look for improvement. Yep. If you look for improvement, then the more, you know, you're on to winning, your, your performances will be better. 
I love that. I love that. Okay, so we're going to go into the third one in terms of simplicity of implementation. I just came up with that. <laughs> and, and, and I think that these are the things that people are naturally really interested in because it's the easiest solution to implement and everybody wants potions and pills to, you know, solve, solve problems. But there can be some, you know, reasonable degree of improvement that we can expect from this last category, which you guys touch on a lot in the paper. I think there's a lot of verbiage that's taken up uh, with just with this last category, and that is probiotics. This is another one of those hot areas. It seemed like it was hotter like two or three years ago, and now it's starting to die down. Where every and things like that are starting to take over. Definitely, the fermented foods is one that. The, the army is, is coming definitely <laughs> the fermented food so you took a lot of time you took a lot of time in the paper to describe how probiotics might actually help the situation let's let's run through that part now I don't know. I hope this is because of my bias in that I think two of my papers are, are cited. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it's like you said, it's the simplest to implement in that you take a pill, you don't take a pill. There's, there's maybe a decision to be made about finding the one that you might use. And that's when for this category, the complexity and the difficulty comes in because like you said, in space, there are loads. There are so many. It's a multi-billion right. pound right. Um, industry now worldwide when you look at it. And it's it's still it's been growing for the last 10 plus years and it's, it's still growing this year. Uh, as a consumer then, when you've, you're facing all this choice and you're also like screamed at about how it's strain-specific, every probiotic is different. And so you can sit there and you feel, well, how do I know which one to choose? Because... There's no great resource that says this is the one that reduces symptoms for athletes or this is the one that reduces traveler's diarrhea or this is the one that's really good for immune function. You just left to your own devices. And I feel so guilty. This is something that because of my research, I've been invited on podcasts or given webinars on so many times. And I feel guilty because I can't give a much better thing than that, better advice than that. Like, other than, okay, well, you need to do a little bit of research. Or if one doesn't work, maybe it's because not all probiotics are useless, but maybe that one just didn't have the, the ability to do what you wanted. Um, so, yeah, so there's in, in this area, there's a little bit more research. Some of it has found no benefits whatsoever. And and I, I approached that. So I went back to, to some of that literature and I started to have a look and not to overly criticize it, but in some of those papers, the, the probiotics were almost destined to fail because exactly like I've said with my athletes to have been beneficial, they needed to uh, like completely eliminate symptoms. So the authors in some papers have, have found how many athletes had symptoms, for example, and there were then no difference between probiotics and placebo, but that's the level at which they research, not okay these athletes had an average severity of this much. Did it even get better slightly? So some of those papers, I think we touched upon in the paper, were destined to fail because you're, if someone has GI issues, they have a long history of GI issues. Like you see it in IBS patients, you're often looking for improvement, not complete elimination. Um, some of the others then that moves upon, which I try to base the, the design of some of my studies, then did start to look at things like, okay, let's have a look how many days a week, for example, in a given month, how many times does, does a runner or an athlete experience problems or experience a symptom? What does that severity look like? How many times do they have a moderate or severe symptom? And papers that have tended to look at those type of measures have found differences in a few different probiotics. So the, the, the scientist in me definitely says that all of them are different, but a lot of them can still do the same thing. So a lot of them can change your make some small change to the microbiome. A lot of them can block pathogens in or compete with pathogens in the intestine. So yeah, the, the efficacy of them could be different, but in general, it's not a bad place to start. If you want to be super detailed, there are ones that have got a little bit more research than others. Um, so in, in, two of our papers now that we've shown that with our marathon runners, they tend to report about one or two days a week where they have a, a serious, a moderate or a serious GI issue during a run. Um, it tends to be about one every 10 days. And we found a, 
about halving of that incidence. And then the number of moderate symptoms was about halved as well. And we've, we've replicated that. And so we did it with our track marathon study where we was all really tightly controlled and we've replicated that in a, in a bigger mass participation race as well. Very similar findings and we have no, no uh, difference in the placebo group. And, and in those, what was the specific intervention or, supp- or supplementation parameters, I guess, that you were using in those cohorts? So we used one that is, it's similar to a lot of other uh, ones that you'll see. So it was 25 billion colony forming units, which is in the sort of ballpark for most capsule-based probiotics. We have four different strains, two of them are lactobacillus, two of them are bifidobacterium. Again, something that's not too uncommon. What we haven't done and what many of us haven't done, and, and I've written and almost criticized, is that we didn't compare this one to another one. Um, because it's difficult. The more arms you add to a study, the lower statistical power, the lower chances you have of finding anything. So I think we are getting to that point where more funding is needed because it's, it's no longer good enough to say, okay, is a probiotic better than nothing? We know that if we design the study well enough, there are some improvements in, again, some athletes. It's not a cure-all. But I, know, I don't want to come across this and say, yeah. okay, get everything that we just said, all of those are really complicated, just throw a probiotic at it. It's not. Because even in our cohort of athletes, in both studies, you still have athletes on a probiotic and they still have a lot of symptoms and a lot of moderate symptoms or a lot of severe symptoms. So it's not a cure-all. You can't just throw a, a tablet at it and make it go away. Well, not only is it not a cure-all, but and that kind of fits the theme that we were talking about earlier, right? We're not looking to eliminate all symptoms. We're just trying to move down the incident scale or the perceived exertion scale, you know, so to speak, uh, with it, with any of these things. Is there though, when we're talking about when we talk about any type of supplementation? Usually there's a minimum effective dose associated with that. We talk about that with caffeine a lot uh, and, and, and a whole host of supplements that, that athletes use. Is that still, do you think, this might be a, I think, statement again, do you think that that is going to be the case on the probiotic side as well? I think so. And I think that's why fermented foods are going to be seen to be beneficial. I'm almost sure of it. There is enough potential there for how they can improve our overall health. What I don't think they'll, they'll be able to do is substitute for some of the times we want to use a probiotic like these specific circumstances because probiotics are in the tens of billions of bacteria. Fermented foods can be in the millions or hundreds of millions. So you're talking a, a, between 10 and 100 factor difference. So I do think there's going to be this minimal dose. And it probably is in that billions range where then what the difference might be. I always present this slide that shows the the one end, you have the fermented yogurt drinks that people will know, the really popular one, that when people know that I I do probiotic research, they think that there's only this one that they all get. That's the sort of, so everyone knows that. And and that's normally, so they they, they sell a range that's about 9 billion. On the very opposite end, you can get ones that are sometimes pharmacologically prescribed, but they are commercially available that have got 450 billion. So it's a, even within commercial products, you've got a 50, a 50 factor difference between the lowest and the highest that you can buy. The number of species, again, is different. And like I said, the, the yakults and things, you often have one strain, one species. Some products have 15. I've seen ones with 25 different species. I don't don't know if a lot of that is just for marketing because it's okay, if some is good, more must be better. But we often don't know, okay, well, which one of those might be the one that works, which one of those will be beneficial for this type of thing. Um, So that comes back to what I said at the start. For a consumer then, you're sat there and you go, okay, this is is my A race. I want to get everything right. Is it enough to just buy the, the... the simple capsule that Jamie's using in his study or the fermented yogurt, this is like super mega dosed. Should I invest all my money and just like cover all bases and just, just go on this one here, 450 billion a day. And no one knows if that is going to be any better to this at all, or, or it could, it could even be worse. So what's the reasonable starting point there? We presented this always, whole landscape of, you know, this many <laughs> yeah, billion colony forming <laughs> units to, to 50x that. Like, where's the reasonable, like, if somebody's looking at this going, 
okay, I understand that it's not going to be a night and day difference. This is an intervention that I want to try because these GI issues are hindering my performance in some way. I think that using a probiotic supplementation is a you know reasonable thing for me. It's you know relatively cost effective. It's easy to implement. Where, like, where's the starting point for people in terms of the types of products that they can use and then the duration that they need to experience that product with before they can see some sort of reasonable improvement? Definitely. Let's, let's take the science hat off first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's because from a science bit, but yeah, from a practical point of view, something that is in that region of 20 to 30 billion colony forming units has multiple strains or species. Again, between three to five is, is probably the most that you want because then it means each of those individual species will be in them in enough. Because like I said, if you had more, but only one of them is effective. It means that, yes, you've got 10 strains, but the one that you really need is, is really low in, in total amount. So there are, the good thing is there are lots of those different types of products. I think as a very minimum, you need to try and give it two weeks. We've never seen this in any of our studies, but there are a small number that show an increase in symptoms in the first two weeks. So maybe that's just if there's maybe some small change in the microbiome, maybe it's that now you've got um, a slight increase in some of the bacteria that can ferment foods a little bit. So like I said, we've never seen it and lots of other studies don't report it, but I do think you need to give it at least two weeks because you may, 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 may see a small increase in symptoms. And that's the point that if you've got a history of symptoms, you would go, Oh no, that why this isn't for me. Right. But for some people that there is an adaptive period, so if you go at least two weeks, and like I said, all of our studies, we we found differences in just four weeks. So in our marathon paper, we found that even after two weeks, there was a beginning of reduction in symptoms. When we gave athletes, when we gave marathon runners a probiotic four weeks before a marathon race, and again, we replicated this in a, in a big city marathon, um, the runners who had taken the probiotic also had lower severity symptoms during the race itself. So during the marathon race in our track marathon, because we could obviously ask them almost every other lap, every like of the 105 and a bit laps that they ran, ran the athletics track. It was specifically in that final third of the race that the marathon runners uh, symptoms were less severe. So they increased a little bit, but once they got into that final third, it was just stabilized. So exactly like we said, the point you want to be, might be mildly uncomfortable, but you, the pace doesn't drop. They can live with it. Whereas in our placebo group, we had a couple of athletes really start to slow down and with some really bad stomach cramping. I, I, I like, we can put a pin in it there because we've got these three interventions and we've got practical recommendations for all of them. Let's kind of run through them and kind of recap it for yeah. the audience here. So the first, so the broad umbrella is, with any of these interventions, it's reasonable to expect some degree of relief, but getting to zero, meaning no issues, especially in an ultramarathon situation, is probably unlikely. So I'd say to even start out with, make sure that you're expectations are adjusted accordingly. <laughs> That's a big part out of all this, right? Huge, <laughs> huge, definitely. Okay, so the first one is low FODMAP diet. And when when athletes are interested in this, I almost almost immediately kick it over to the registered diet, dietitians to try to do this. This is that's a long term proposition. There's some there's some evidence that this could work. There's a lot of anecdotal tales of it was miraculous for me, or I had some sort of you know mild symptom reductions and things like that. But that's the complicated scenario because you're you're kind of turning over your entire diet. You're like upheaving your your entire diet, correct? A hundred percent. And like I said, without going down another rabbit hole into a complete other topic, I'd say a simpler starting point for most athletes is to just look at the, the diets, so not from a FODMAP point of view, but from just there are other practical things they can look at first in terms of what they're eating and when they're eating around the race. So if that's your starting point, looking at that pre-race diet, so the 24 to 48 hours before, there are probably other things that will immediately stand out that if you just change that, rather than, like you said, completely change the entire diet. Um, but certainly, if that's then the route you want to go down the low FODMAP, registered dietitian, 
good, um, solid, well-researched advice and support as well, because I think this is, it's such a big thing. It's probably too big of an issue to just tackle on your own and keep yourself honest and accountable with it. hundred percent. So then there's gut training. And I think the the recommendations we kind of batted her. I'm laughing because it's just uh, we're just making stuff up. <laughs> it's it they're reasonable reasonably educated guesses, but at the end of the day, that's about as good as you can get. A few days a week for several weeks, you're doing your race day nutrition plan. I think that that's reasonable. It's practically implementable, and from a science perspective, there's reasonable evidence to suggest that that has a degree of efficacy to it as and even if like you said even if we we said we could find a study that eventually said well the minimum dose showed that you maybe only needed to do this in your last long run for the race why would you leave it until then why would you not start thinking about this eight weeks out so even if you don't need eight weeks from a adaptation and a like sort of training point of view you want as much time as possible to figure things out and get things wrong change your mind you might abandon a run halfway through because you do need to run to the toilet. So for beyond just the physiological point of view, you should be starting with a reasonable amount of time before. Okay. So that's the gut training piece of it. A few days yeah. a week, several weeks, several weeks beforehand, and maybe yeah. a super gut trial to, to test like tolerance limits or some sort of new food or things like that. Those are one-off situations. And then the last thing on the probiotics, and you're going to have to, you're the expert here, so you're going to have to correct my dose and timing on this if I, if I misremembered it, but it's in the tens of, of billions of colony forming units that you're taking a supplement of which you have three to five strands for four weeks leading up to the race. Yeah, at least. And it's, it is one of those things that you said it's probiotics can be a, a, almost a, one of those lifestyle supplements. So People will maybe take them over the winter period and it seems that they are um, transient in that if you start taking them within a few weeks, all of those bacteria that you, that you were putting in seem to disappear. So it's not that you have to take them every day, but you, like, so it's not so that you can think, okay, well, I'll take it six months out for a few months before the race and it doesn't matter if I stop beforehand. So as a minimum dose, yeah, four weeks before a race, um, and I, oh, it's the same thing as it was, then is your budget affords and, and where that ranks on your priority list of, of what you want to spend your money on leading to a race. And I, I don't want to tell people to spend their money on that rather than coaching or physio or massage or anything else. Because like I said, like, unless you're a sponsored athlete, all these things come at a cost. And I think you need to think, is, is that the best avenue for my, for my money? For, I mean, that, that's a good, that's actually the best point to leave it on. If I put my coaching hat on, which is the hat that I wear almost all the time, I start with two, which is the gut training, make sure you know your race day routine, and then I go to the probiotic side, and then I go to low FODMAP diet. That's the way that I would kind of rank order those interventions. As a genuinely, exactly, genuinely now, exactly the same from from all of my experience, and I found that 90 to 95% of athletes, I only need to look at that second point. I, yep, I, I'm, I'm with I you there. It, it's the, most. but it's the 5% that it makes me pull my hair out. And those are the athletes that pull their own hair out, right? I mean, you have, you have enough experience working with athletes that there is a, it's a small cohort, maybe it's 5%, maybe it's 10% or whatever. There's a small cohort that you just have to throw all the interventions out and you just, you're just trying to completely problem solve to get them from a nine or a 10 on that one to 10 scale down to something that's manageable, which might, which might be four. And I mean, that becomes the performance limiter for those athletes for sure. Absolutely. And like I said, in, in it's, again, I think it's something we touched on early in the paper. It's for me, it's the realization that sometimes that if the more recreational athletes we work with just by chance, the more that we'll work with, someone who has undiagnosed IBS, somebody who has an undiagnosed... And so there, like you said, that 5% is, is way more difficult than like I said, and could even... I've had two scenarios where it's eventually even needed clinical follow-up because yeah. it's just... They could live with it, but it was almost that, that, that exercise physical challenge that started to reveal what was underlying pathology. Yep, and sometimes that... I mean, just like training, sometimes you need advanced interventions to create the adaptation. It's the same thing here. Yeah. 
Definitely. All right. That's a brilliant place to leave it. Do you have any, do you have any final thoughts on this incredibly complex issue? And I do, I do think, I can't promise this right here, right now, but I do think that in sequence, the next podcast uh, that is going to be released is with your colleague, Kyle, who's the lead author of this paper. So it's going to be another, fo- it's going to be another follow-up. We'll, we'll make sure to sure. hit on, on different angles of this for sure. I was going to say, I'm sure because of obviously we came together because we all have different, like, different interests and angles, but I'm sure Kyle will be bring something completely different as well and, and a new approach to this. And um, no, this is, this has been awesome. This has almost been like a, a bit of a dream for the last few months. So thank you so much for coming up and for letting me come on, uh, to come on podcast that you actually listen to is pretty cool <laughs> well thank you for coming on it's a great it's it's uh always good to to weave in uh people who are in the scientific community that also directly work with athletes on a consistent basis like you do because you bring the practical element of all of this science and you can say well i studied all this stuff and i knew all about this but here's how we like you know, throw most of it out the yeah, window yeah. and take the one sliver of what I do know. You do that brilliant, Jamie, and that's why that's one of the reasons I appreciate you out in the field. Good um, luck at Kona. That's going to be fun. Good luck getting into the U.S. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot, man. All right, folks, there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to Jamie for coming on the podcast today. Next week, we are going to have Jamie's colleague and the lead author of the paper that we were discussing, Kyle Smith, to come on the podcast as a follow-up to this conversation. I cannot wait for that. Expect more practical insights and a little bit more of a deep science dive into why we experience these GI uh, issues and and what are the different pathways out of there. Appreciate the heck out of each and every one of the listeners out there. As you all know, there are no sponsors or no endorsers of this podcast. The best thing that you can do to help the podcast out is just to spread the love and spread the word to your friends. I really appreciate it when I see people sharing this podcast out there on social media. It just makes my heart line up. So I appreciate the heck out of each and every one of you. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.